Hello? Hi, Nishi. Hey, Dance, how are you doing? Hi, Shadil. What's up? Dance, I, I wanted to ask you something. H- how many times did you talk to mom and dad today? Um, let's see what time it is. It's about four o'clock. I've spoken to mom once, dad once, mom once, four times in total, I would say. And uh, is, that, is that a normal day or is that a low-frequency day? <laughs> That's pretty normal around this hour. Usually there are a couple more phone calls back and forth in the evening. So sometimes, sometimes they call me together. When they call together from the house, usually it starts with both of them on the line, each one on a different telephone. And then at some point, Mom goes, David, I can't hear anything. Close the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and then Dad closes the phone. And then me and Mom have a whole conversation. Who went what, what did what, 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 what. We finish the conversation. We hang up. And then Dad calls me back. He's like, hey, what's new? I'm like, what's new? I just had a whole load down. And he's like, yeah, but I wasn't there for it. We have the whole thing over again between me and Dad. <laughs> Then usually they'll call again late at night because no one's sleeping over there at the household. And mom's half asleep and dad's talking to me. And then we hang up and crash to sleep. And then first thing in the morning, I'd say 7.38, someone calls me and they're like, hey, what's new? What's up? <laughs> like, what could be up? What, what more could have happened? And, and how, old, how old are you, Dance? <laughs> I am 45 years old. Okay, one, one second. I wanna I wanna bring Oren up on the line. Um, so one second. I'm just gonna let's 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 call Oren. Okay. Hello. Hey, Ori. Hey, Mish. How's it going? Good. Dance is on the Hi, line too. Hi, Ori. Hi, Dance. Ori, listen. I have a question. How many times a day, on average, uh, do you speak to mom and dad? Oh, I don't know. I'd say about between uh, four and five. I mean, uh, you know, every morning uh, at around 9 o'clock, just as I'm about to leave the house, that's when the first phone call comes. Okay, okay. Uh, and uh, I've got a foot out the door, but it, uh, it always ends up being about 15 minutes of uh, discussions of your love life and Donna's life and stuff like that. Uh-huh. That's the first phone call. Yeah. Then around, you know, 12 in the afternoon, lunchtime, I'd say that's when the second phone call comes in. Uh-huh. And about two or three times, uh, you know, towards the evening and once before I go to bed. How many times do you speak to mom and dad? I'd say I talk to mom and dad on average uh, somewhere between, let's say, five and seven times a day. Really? Yeah, that's because the rest of the time you're actually at the house. So they don't need to call you because you're there with yeah, them. Every time I call them or speak to them, you're in the house. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah. Well, come on, Aaron. yeah, of course. And tell me something. Do you think that it's normal that we talk, that we talk to mom and dad so much? Sure, it's normal. Forty-three-year-old, forty-six-year-old, thirty-four-year-old talking to their parents on average fifteen times a day. I'd say it's pretty normal. One sec. Let's let's bring mom and dad on the line a second. Hello. Hi, Mish. How are you, Cookie? Hi, Hi Ma. Hi, Abba. Hi, Mom. Hi. Hi, 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 everybody. Hi, guys. Hi, Mother. Hi, Dad. <laughs> How's it going? Hi, nice to hear your voice. Great. Hi, What's up with you guys? Good. Uh, Ima, who do you talk to the most from, uh, you know, from all the kids? You, of course. You're here. I speak to you all the time. <laughs> I told you. You know that, Miss. You're the one who calls us most of the time. I call you? Yeah, how of many course, times does she call a day, Ima? How many half times? a dozen, at least. I mean, half a dozen is 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 a, is, a, is, a, is a small amount. Yeah, a very low estimate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. a lot. You know, we check it. We check in all the time. They like being in contact. <laughs> right. You Listen, might. everybody's making fun of us, but it's it's silly because I think we're very lucky. We want to be in touch. We like to share all our things that's going on, all the stories. So. Everybody else is missing out. For us, it's wonderful that we have three such great kids, and we love to talk to them, and they like to talk to us. That's the truth. Yeah, it's cozy, no? Donna, it's cozy. cozy. Sometimes it gets a little much, right, Don? Sometimes you feel it's a little overbearing. I'm just not a big phone talker, honestly. I'm like the less phone talker in the family. Right. Yeah, it rarely ever happens that I call Mishy and his phone isn't busy. Because I'm talking to Oren or Donna. (laughs) <laughs> do you think there's any connection between the fact that we're all so close and, and talk so often 
and the fact that, um, well, I guess let's say that the, those amongst us that did get married got married kind of late in life. Listen, I would, I, uh, you know, don't blame us for you guys not getting your acts together. Get married. That'd be lovely. Then we'll talk more with the grandchildren. Goodbye. Don Batavon. Bye. 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 Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman. That was my slightly over-the-top family, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. Our episode today, Thicker Than Water. Stories about how it really is, at the end of the day, all in the family. We're going to be delving into the world of family bonds. We're going to see how they're formed and strengthened and challenged in a bunch of different ways. And we'll do that through the stories of two families, the Griffles and the Kosovils, who are both happy families, but are not in any Tolstoy-like way alike. Okay, before we get to today's stories, I have something really important to say. This episode is about families. And when we began our program almost three years ago, the Israel Story family was so small it could basically fit in my living room. In fact, it did, many times. But since then we've grown and grown and grown, and now there are tens of thousands of people in the Israel Story family. And today, for the first and only time this season, we're going to ask you to do what family members so often do, to help us out, to support our show. We began Israel Story because there was nothing like it out there. Sure, there was This American Life, whom, as Ira only half-jokingly pointed out in our very first episode, we totally ripped off. But on a more fundamental level, there was very little human interest, complicated, nuanced content coming out of and about Israel. And that's what we wanted to share. Not the Israel of the news, a place of violence and conflict and terror. And not the Israel of the advocacy groups, a place of startups and microchips and innovative cherry tomatoes. The Israel we wanted to explore was all about its people, about its diversity and richness and complexity. We wanted to paint a picture of our home, a place that was simultaneously beautiful and ugly, that cracked you up one moment and brought you to tears the next, that was heartfelt and bizarre and informative, and mainly just real. And in order to do that, we pour our hearts into this show. We travel up and down the country searching for the best stories that capture Israel today. We've met an Eritrean refugee who translated Anne Frank's diary into Tigrinya, and an ultra-Orthodox mom who adopted four babies with Down syndrome. We explored six different rabbins in today's Israel, 20 years after the assassination, and visited all the people living at 48 Herzl Street throughout the country all the way from Kiryat Shmona to Dimona. We've spent months investigating every corner of Tel Aviv's central bus station and opened up old ideological wounds from the 1950s in Kibbutz En Chaod. Sometimes our stories have taken us even farther away. This season we've ventured to Malta to record the tale of the friendship between 99-year-old Ruth Dayan and her bestie, Ramonda Tawil, We've reported an hour-long episode together with Radiolab from Nepal, where Tal and Amir went to pick up their triplets and were surprised by the earthquake. We've traveled to Peru to meet Ukrainian-born ex-Israeli shamans, and to Bristol, where Nathan Filer and Emily Parker told us the tale of how their daughter was conceived in a detention center outside of Ben-Gurion Airport. We've even turned one of our pieces, a love story between two men, an Israeli Jew and Palestinian Arab, into a 20-minute-long Broadway-style musical. We bring you all of these stories, along with many others, for absolutely nothing. And now is your chance to give back to the show that you love in whatever amount works for you. With your generous help, we'll be able to do even more to increase the quality of our reporting, take more storytelling risks, and follow more extensive storylines. Your donation will make that happen. Now, I know you think this might be overstating it, but believe me, it isn't. We count on listener support to make this program possible. By becoming a supporter, and even more so, a sustaining monthly supporter, you're playing a vital role in the creation of Israel Story. 
Our show is independently owned, so when you support Israel Story, you're supporting us. As a podcast listener, you have a ton of choices. I read somewhere recently that there are 300,000 active podcasts in English out there today. You've chosen Israel Story, and I want to say thank you, because our aim is simple. We work for you, the listener. So go to israelstory.org, that's israelstory.org, and click on the red Donate button in the upper right corner. As you'll see, we have all kinds of support levels for you to choose from, from $10 all the way to 1000 including a custom amount, so there's really something there for everyone. The site is mobile-friendly and all donations are tax-deductible. What helps us most is if you check the Become a Sustaining Monthly Contributor box. So consider supporting us by choosing a donation that makes sense for your bottom line while helping us with ours. If you want to join the growing Israel Story family and become a supporter at any level, from $10 a month to $200, now is the time. Visit israelstory.org and click Donate. Thank you all so, so much. People like you who care about Israel and care about storytelling are the reason that Israel Story exists. And we hope, with your help, to continue this magical storytelling journey of ours for many years to come. Yalla. Now let's tell some stories. We've all got our anchors in life. People we can trust will be there no matter what, like a rock. For many of us, it's our parents. But what do you do when that rock crumbles to dust? Shoshi Shmulevitz brings us the story of one woman, a 36-year-old physical therapist from Jerusalem, who's been searching for that stable family bond her entire life. Act 1, The Missing Moms. I'm always looking for a mom, just to be clear. like Growing up, I always had moms who took me in, not full-time. But I always spent several nights a week at my best friend's house. And I always very much loved a couple mothers and loved talking to them and loved spending time with them. And they reciprocated. And it was never a replacement, but, you know, you need support in your life. Tally Griffel was born in the desert city of Eilat, at the southernmost tip of Israel. She was immediately put up for adoption, and the couple who took her in, an American dad and a Canadian mom, lived in Jerusalem. That's where she spent the first five years of her life. I have very vivid memories of a few scenes, uh, just like looking for ladybugs in like uh, an overgrown lot behind my building. I remember cauliflower and bechamel sauce for dinner that my mother used to make that I really loved. I have a few memories with my parents, but maybe not as many as I'd like. They separated when I was four. I think she wanted to stay here and raise me here, and he wanted to be in America. And I think that was like the big split. Her dad moved to D.C. while Tally and her mom stayed in Jerusalem. I was very sad because I was very, very attached to my father. And I think it was very hard for my mother because I don't think she necessarily wanted him to go either. As a child, I felt she made him leave. I mean, I try not to like beat myself up about what I may or may not have done when I was four, but I probably could have been easier for her. Like, I, I might have made it harder than than it already was. Her father was an ocean away, but he called every week, and he visited. And Tali's mom, Anita, adored her. She was her rock, and she was always her champion. I remember riding my bike, my mother taking me down to the commercial strip and riding my bike down there which I love to do, and I remember once getting knocked off my bike. An older child ran into me with his bike, and I remember her just grabbing the kid by the collar and holding him in the air and screaming at him. She was uh, reserved, tall, like naturally elegant, kind, smart, and when she kissed me, there were like sparks sometimes like uh, electric shocks, but I remember being like, ow, <laughs> when, I, when I was little. I just remember having a calm house that 
that there was somebody who I could turn to who was there and stable. But when she was five years old, that sense of stability and safety was broken. We went on vacation with family friends for Sukkot, just my mother and me and her friends from the university. We camped out in Sinai on the beach at Ras Borka. These were the years after Israel and Egypt made peace, and the beaches of Sinai became a popular vacation spot for Israelis. There was a dune right above where we were camping out, and we had gone down, and it was very, very fun. And of course, we were children, so we wanted to go again. And a few of the adults took us up, and a few stayed down to organize the meal. And the second time we went up, there was an Egyptian soldier outpost there, and one of the Egyptian soldiers opened fire on our group. I definitely remember, like, the moment of transition between laughter and gleeful noises of children at the beach to, like, terror and screams and and something very, very awful and very, very wrong is happening. So a few of the children were able to run down the dune and were safe, but everybody who was on top just got stuck there. Um, And I was there with my mom, and she threw herself on me. I was there for quite a while, more than an hour. I remember feeling like hot sand, blue sky, feeling my mother's body weight on me. And I remember seeing blood and not knowing if it's me or her, what's happening, if I was okay or not okay. or I just was in shock. And at some point after the shooting stopped, the other soldiers told me to come forward. So I did, and I just was sitting there. One of the adults from the group who hadn't gone up uh, negotiated with them in Arabic, just said, like, let the girl come down, let the girl come down. And the Egyptian uh, authorities wouldn't let ambulances come. So time just passed. And... um. Yeah, my mother just bled to death. And then they let me run back down the hill towards where we had come from. And then I was taken uh, to the border, and at the border uh, we were driven back to Jerusalem. Tali was the only survivor at the top of that sand dune. Seven others were killed, three of them children. They were Tali's friends. Tali's dad flew in from the U.S. and took her to her mother's funeral. I think that I understood, but I pretended not to understand for a long time. I kept asking my dad, when is she getting out of the hospital, even though the funeral had happened and I understood that Nobody was getting out of any hospital. You know, when I lost her, like, I lost the center. I'd gone through so much that nothing felt calm anymore. A few weeks after the funeral, Tally's dad packed them up and brought her over to the U.S. to live with him. He always very much encouraged me to talk about it. And, like, obviously he took me to a child psychologist when I was little. But the psychologist pretty much gave me, like, an all-clear after a few sessions and just said, keep talking to her, and if anything arises, come back. But conversations about my mother were very hard to... It felt very artificial and forced, and I didn't know how to start it, and it always felt like he didn't know what to say. And the dialogue wasn't open because it was so far away and so distant. I also, I mean, I I was in shock for about a year in terms of being afraid of everything, fire, water, being outdoors. So it took a while for me to become a normal kid again. But I think that process was a little bit easier in America because it was just nothing reminded me exactly of, of what had happened. Like it really was just like cut, start something new. It helped that Tally and her dad became a team of two. He was always supportive of her, and she made it her business to be the perfect kid. Very agreeable, 
easygoing, adaptable. I was very much looking to not cause trouble. There was no boundary testing. There are things that maybe some other kids need to be told that I would never have needed to be told in terms of, like, how to talk to my father. I never would have said something rude. It was just very important for me to keep the one parent I had happy. In the years that followed, Tally got good grades, became captain of her high school soccer team, and got into Brown. But before starting college, she decided to spend a year in Israel, learning Hebrew on a kibbutz. It wasn't so great. (laughs) And I thought it was kind of like second-rate country compared to America. She went back to the U.S. and started college. But she found it kind of empty and meaningless. And then it hit her. I was sitting on a bus, I was looking at the stars, and I said to myself, oh, I have to go back to Israel and join the army. Like, in one moment, it was just in my gut. And I said, that's absolutely what has to happen. I just, I needed to learn Hebrew, and then I needed to go into the army. I just needed to be Israeli. Tally wasn't religious. She wasn't even much of a Zionist. And yet, she was propelled to come back to the place where she'd lost her mother. It was as though she was righting a wrong. It was like a path that I was diverted from. I left so much of me behind when I left when I was five. I think a lot of it had to be with like what my mom would expect and want me to do because she was a Zionist. She spoke perfect Hebrew and she made Aliyah at age 28. Her Hebrew was really gorgeous, hardly accented, and her friends were all Israelis and... Everything that I've heard and that I know about her is that she really was attached to Israel and to Jerusalem. So after her freshman year of college, Tali moved to Israel and joined the army. Like her mother, she became fluent in Hebrew. She reconnected with their old friends in Jerusalem and with the place she used to know. And then after the army, when she was 21, she became curious about something she'd never taken much interest in before, her biological family. Tally had always known she was adopted. It was just a fact. And I was very comfortable with it. And I certainly didn't think about it while all these big life changes were happening. But now she was back in Israel, all grown up, and beginning to think about one day having a family of her own. It was time for her to find her roots. And that meant finding her biological mother. I walked into the child welfare ministry. I sat down with one of the social workers and I asked to open my file. And she said, okay. (laughs) And then we made a date for a couple weeks later. And she had a lot of information about, mostly about my mom, a little bit about my biological father. I mean, I was very relieved because you can imagine a million different awful scenarios of where you might have come from. You can imagine that you're, you know, a drug addict's child or a result of a rape or something really, I mean, that's probably what most adoptions are. And in this case, it was actually just a story of a mother who was too young with a child um, already, like she'd given uh, birth to a girl 14 months before she gave birth to me. And she was only 23. But the notes, I mean, were so flattering. She was, they said, you know, uh, intelligent, uh, lovely, uh, attractive. So those are all very happy things to hear if you're interested in finding out about your past. And it also said that the father wanted to keep me and that she insisted on giving me up for adoption. So then she said she would try and contact the mother, and that she felt optimistic, and that she would be in touch with me as soon as there was anything to report. Tally was elated. Soon, she'd have a mom and a sister, her mind filled with visions of the reunion. I imagined that we would meet in some formal setting and have like a very gentle opening to this new world. And there would be, you know, some emotion involved after all these years. Three weeks later, the social worker called her back in. She had some bad news. She 
She had gone to visit Hadass, my biological mother, and when she went up to see her, she uh, an 11-year-old boy answered the door. And then after that, when uh, Hadass had come to the door, she said, don't ever come back here. And she closed the door in her face. That was the end of that. <laughs> like, I was, it was, um, I was really disappointed. I think I held it together at the office and I was like, oh yeah, okay, huh, okay, fine. And then when I got home, I just cried a lot, a lot, a lot. It was just like a devastating blow that I didn't see coming because I didn't think I cared that much and I didn't think she'd say no. So like the double combo of discovering that you really, really care and she said no um, made it like a lot for me to bear. It was like losing a mother for the second time. And now that she knew more about her biological family, she just couldn't let it go. Everywhere she went, she found herself wondering, could that be my mother over there by the bank machine? Or that one sitting at the cafe? Which is kind of like this haunting sensation. It went on like that for years. Then when Tali was 25, she got a call. And it was the social worker from Jerusalem. And she said... Where did you go? Where did you disappear to? I've been looking everywhere for you. Do you know your sister came in and she wants to meet you? When can you come into the office? They scheduled an appointment for the two women to meet. And the day of, I was nervous, excited, like the day of a wedding. Tali stepped into the office to meet her biological sister, Moran. I think it took about a minute of just looking. They were wearing exactly the same thing. Birkenstocks, capri pants, red tank tops, the same brand of handbag. One had stripes, one had polka dots. And after the initial surprise at that wore off, they checked out each other's thumbs. Our defining feature. They both have these same funny hammerhead thumbs, a genetic anomaly. And then we started talking And then it was like a snowball. We just had a lot to catch up on. We just talked about everything. We talked about our childhood, about our parents, uh, about our partners, about our interests, about work, about basically about life. That's how it started. And now, 10 years later, the sisters have inside jokes and finish each other's sentences. We choose to be together. We've been together for major life events. Uh, Morani's been at the birth of two of my kids. Can't think of anybody else that I would want with me at the birth. I mean, she stood there with like a shower on me, rubbing my back for 10 hours. (laughs) So that, you know, getting wet in her clothes, like that's, that's just the person that I feel like I want with me in those major events. Eventually, as the sisters grew closer, their mother Hadas agreed to meet Tali. We walk in after 26 years of not meeting, and she's like, hey, want a beer? And I was like, okay, that's how it all begins. Like, that was minute one of our life. (laughs) And then I had a beer, and we were sitting outside, We had really like a lovely evening, but we didn't talk about any of the heavy stuff. It took many years to talk about the heavy stuff. We did it in drops, little drops. And I still don't feel like we talked about all the issues that there are to talk about. All those years longing for a mother... And now it was clear they were not going to have the mother-daughter relationship that Tali had envisioned. In terms of Hadass, I feel like it's an evolving relationship and it's an adult relationship. I'm not meeting her as a child. I'm not looking for a new mom. If at 21 I had met Hadass and she would have been open to me, then I think she would have taken on a mother role in a way uh, that right now has not happened. But it would have been somebody that I would have come to for support when I needed it. My father... He's always worried that, like, my mother will be replaced 
and it's so not an issue. It's almost comical to me how different they are. When I think about the two of them, they're so not interchangeable. I really wish my mother who raised me could be here to be with my children. I mean, that's really like... If I could have a wish, that might be my wish. The person I, I want to eternally please, that's the person who I hold in my mind is when I raise my children, I want her to be proud of them. Today, Tally has the big family that she always wanted to be a part of. Three young kids, a loving husband, and a big black poodle. Their Jerusalem apartment is bright and tidy and filled with the trappings of family life. Toys in big plastic bins, tiny toothbrushes on the bathroom counter, a photo of Tali and her daughter riding a tandem bicycle on a family picnic. Despite the trauma of losing her mom so violently, she's built a strong, harmonious family. And in that sense, Tali has become the mother she was always searching for. When I see my kids playing together, it's like the world is lined up perfectly. When they're happy and they're together, I don't have much to do with it, but I feel like it's my greatest achievement. And the fact that they can just enjoy each other's company makes me feel so much better about the future that if I'm not here, that they can have each other. Shoshi Shmulevitz is a producer on our show. Okay, so our next story is about a different kind of familial bond. One that's both super noisy and totally quiet. And, as you'll hear in just a moment, it's not the most trivial choice for a radio piece. Act two, the radio babe. Here's Maya Kosover. When I was little, my parents kept the radio playing in my room all the time. There was a chest of drawers next to the crib where I slept. The radio sat on top of it. It would be on for hours and hours every day. The radio was like another member of the family. I like to think that's the reason I fell in love with the medium. But this story isn't about radio, really. It's about the people who made me listen to it. My dad's 65, my mom's a year younger. They are both retirees who are still energetic and beautiful and spunky. This story is about them. The only thing is that when it airs, all they'll hear is... Yeah, my parents can't really understand the magical notion of voices booming out of a box. Recently, I asked my father to describe a radio for me. We'll be dubbing my dad from now on because his English isn't great, but even if you understand Hebrew, you probably won't be able to make out what he just said. Radio, he explained, it's a device that speaks to you. You can hear all kinds of stories and songs and sounds. But actually, I don't hear anything. Sometimes, when you were a baby, I would crank the volume all the way up and put my hand on the speaker so that I could feel the vibrations and imagine the sounds. My dad, Ellie, got meningitis when he was two months old. He recovered but was left deaf for life. My mom, Mira, was born that way. Deaf people talk funny because they've never heard how people are supposed to talk. They can imitate the movement of the lips, they can use sign language, but as far as they're concerned, language is not about sound. 
That's not to say that the homes of deaf people are quiet. Actually, they are quite loud. There's a lot of noise that deaf people aren't even aware of. Cabinet doors slamming, things falling, people yelling. But the sounds of a deaf home are different than those of the outside world. They are random and jolting, and speech sounds completely different. That's why the radio was constantly on when I was a baby. My parents wanted me to learn how hearing people speak. And this introduced me to a whole world of sounds. Here's my mom. I would turn the radio on and play songs for you, and I would invite grandma over to tell you stories, because I can't tell a story properly. I mean, with the voices and all. It would always come out like ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. And that wasn't fun for you. But my mom's wrong. I actually did like the way my parents told me stories, in their odd voices, without paying any attention to rhythm or rhymes. You want to hear what I mean? Well, in the mid-80s, we got a cassette player, and my parents would buy a lot of books on tape for me. Here, for instance, is a recording of a children's story called Dira Laskir, or An Apartment for Rent. It's the classic Israeli children book. Now, here's my dad's rendition. For me, this was just normal. After all, I'd been hearing my parents' voices ever since I was born. It's almost impossible to imagine what it must be like to learn how to speak as a deaf person. I mean, we all learn by imitation. But my parents? They had to imitate a language they had never heard. That's my Savta, Aviva, my mom's mom. We hired all kinds of private tutors when your mom was really, really young. When I was little, Safta sat down next to me with a mirror and showed me how to speak. She took my hand and put it on her lips and mouthed out each letter. Mm. Zzz, just like that. And then she'd start with words. Ba, ba, ba. And I would practice this way. Aba, aba. My grandmother taught my mom how to pronounce each letter, each syllable, each sound, how to follow the movement of the lips, the way the tongue sticks to the roof of the mouth with the letter N, compared with the way it touches the front teeth with the letter L, the difference between B and P, when you are supposed to pucker your lips and when you need to produce a blast of air. Safta, you didn't speak uh, sign language at home, right? No, we didn't know how to. It wasn't allowed. What do you mean it wasn't allowed? Who said it wasn't? The teachers, the school principals. They told us not to speak to Mira in sign language. That way she would be forced to learn how to read lips and communicate with hearing people. And that's exactly what happened. This was in the 50s, and things today are very different. Most deaf people speak sign language and read lips. And according to many studies on the subject, there is no conflict between the two skills. On the contrary. But back then, in the early days of the state, they didn't really know how to raise deaf children. My parents' childhood was sort of a sustained period of trial and error. When I was about three years old, my mother put me in a kindergarten for hearing people. But the other kids' parents didn't want me there. They saw me as some sort of weird kid, as if I was retarded and could actually infect the other kids. I remember my mom was really hurt. Those holier-than-thou ladies. Oh, yeah. I remember them very, very well. Anyway, we ended up sending your mom to the deaf kid kindergarten. 
At that point, they conducted an experiment and moved a bunch of us to the Balfour School in Tel Aviv. It was the first time in the history of the country that they experimented with placing deaf kids in regular classes. Recently, my mom pulled out a faded newspaper clipping from 1963 to show me. The article described that innovative classroom experiment. Smack in the center of it was a black and white photograph of a beautiful girl with big eyes looking up at the chalkboard. That's me. I used to like to look in the mirror and imagine that I could hear and speak like normal people, you know, clearly and fast and fluent. But of course, I wasn't like everyone else. My mom would explain to me what everybody was saying, and I was a very curious girl. I would constantly interrupt her and ask, What's she saying? And now what's he saying? And what are you saying? I had a really good friend at the time, Hannah. She was hearing. She lived in the building across the street, and we could see each other from our balconies. We'd spend hours together talking without sound. People who passed by on the street would watch and think that I was talking to the sky or to the trees and didn't know that I was talking to a friend on the opposite porch. I had known that my mom had hearing friends growing up. But it was only after I began talking to my parents for this story that I learned about my dad's hearing girlfriend. Before I met your mom, I dated a young hearing woman. Honestly, when it was just the two of us, things were very good. But when we were outside, in public, we had a problem. I was handicapped and couldn't hear what everyone was saying. I was missing out on all the laughter and the stories. So in the end, I told her that we weren't such a good match after all, and we broke up. But it was on a good note. I asked my dad how he met my mom. How we met? Mm, go ask Ima. But she's always doing the talking. You should talk a little too. Fine. Uh, how did we meet? I think it was at a Shema event. I don't know. My dad isn't quite sure, which I find a bit funny. But he thinks it was at a Shema club, which is a non-profit that assists the deaf and the hearing impaired. My mother, in what seems like a much more credible account, claims that it was at a party. And that she had her doubts about him. He started hitting on me. Abba, is that true? Oh, I don't remember. Like a madman, he started hitting on me. But I wasn't sure about him. You don't remember any of this? I had a lot of women. <laughs> Now my dad's blushing. My mom runs into the bedroom and returns with a small suitcase. Yes, a suitcase. Stuffed with dozens of love letters from my father. Another new discovery for me. But actually, it makes sense. When they met in 1970, my dad was living in Haifa, and my mom was a Tel Aviv girl. They couldn't speak over the phone, and the fax machine, which would later change our family life forever, was still a thing of the future. You see, I'm stubborn. You keep telling me to throw things away, throw things away, so I hate it. Ima, I tell you to throw away garbage, not these things. You see, Maya? Even you can be surprised. <laughs> Though he sheepishly denies it, my dad courted my mom like crazy. And it worked. They got married and moved to Haifa, where they both worked as technicians for big military industries. They were the only deaf people in their departments, which wasn't easy. They had a hard time moving up the company ladder and would constantly have to ask what was being said around them. That was during the day. But at night, their life was completely different. They were part of a vibrant local deaf community, a commune of sorts, made up of people who'd all known each other basically since childhood. When they got together, there was ironically lots and lots of talking. And social gatherings of deaf people, at least in Haifa, last forever. They play party games, dress up in costumes, do imitations of each other, put on plays. There's something, and I mean this with the greatest love possible, so joyful about their evenings that it's almost childlike. 
These meetings are such a big part of life for Haifa's deaf community that some of them actually wanted their children to be born deaf as well, so they fit in. But my parents thought differently. They felt comfortable in their deaf world, of course. But when they started talking about having kids, they prayed would be able to hear. We really, really wanted to have hearing children because we realized how limiting deafness can be. It's an obstacle, for sure. There are many things that we are missing out on, and I wanted you to have a better life than ours. After two and a half years of marriage, they had my older brother, Oren. He could hear. Here's my Safta again. When he was a little boy, Oren wasn't embarrassed about his parents. He would invite his friends over all the time, and he'd never try to hide his mom and dad. Everything was just normal. His parents were deaf. Yeah, of course I remember that. That's him, my brother, Oren. Some of the kids uh, used to laugh behind my back and make uh, fun of how mom and dad uh, spoke. They thought I didn't know, but I did, of course. Um, like, uh, you know how dad sort of sounds uh, like a robot when he talks. <laughs> yeah, of course I know it. Can you do an imitation of him? Oren, Oren, Boker Tov, Maya, Kumi Kumi. You know, when I was a kid, uh, I'd stay out until late playing uh, soccer on the street. And at some point, uh, Dad would open the window and yell down to me to come up uh, for dinner. Uh, and he used to shout, Oren! Oren! Um, I didn't like it uh, so much as everyone uh, used to laugh. So I asked him uh, to make a, an agreement between us that uh, he would uh, whistle very, very loud instead. And I would know that uh, I need to come uh, back home. I was born seven years after Oren. And I too can hear. Well, I can hear in one ear. So Oren and I, we were always sort of a team. Not the usual dynamics of a normal family. Even the basic things are different. Ima, so when we were babies, like, how did you know that we were crying? We had a sound-activated light that would flash in the whole house when you'd cry, and I would get up easily. But deaf or not, some things were just the same. Abba wouldn't wake up, so I would go like this. She shows me how she'd elbow my father in the ribs. So he would have to get up and help me. Don't forget, I was a working woman, and I had to get up early to go to work. This one time, the flashing light was going off all night and didn't stop. I was all nervous and didn't know what to do. I got up and saw you were fine, Maya, calm and quiet and asleep. So your dad said that the machine must be broken and that I should switch it off or take out the battery, but I couldn't do it. I was too afraid. So I remember I didn't sleep that night, and the light went on flashing and flashing. In the morning, I noticed that the radio has been blasting all night, and that's why the light was flashing. Apparently, it didn't take me long to understand that my parents couldn't hear. My mom tells me that when I was six months old and started to crawl, I would pull at her pent leg to get her attention. A year later, at 18 months, I was already translating for her when my Safta Aviva would call on the phone from Tel Aviv. I guess I learned all of this from Oren. Today, Oren has three kids of his own, and it's hard for either of us to imagine them having to go through the challenges we had with our parents. I'm Yuval Kosover, and I'm six years old, and I'm in the first grade. Yuval is Oren's oldest daughter. I suggested that she'll talk to her dad in English for our sake about what it was like to have deaf parents. As you can hear, English is still kind of new to her. Abba, what was it like 
to grow up in a deaf people house. Yuvali, for me, it was something quite natural because that's the only thing I knew. How do you think it was like? Mm, hard. You know, Saba and Safta would ask me and Maya to talk on the phone for them. Why? Because they couldn't hear what the other person was saying, so they didn't know what to answer. So you spoke instead of them? Yeah. When I was uh, three and a half years old, they put uh, an advertisement on the newspaper uh, that published the car they wanted to sell. Uh, the phone calls started to ring in the house. I was answering them. And eventually, I managed to sell the car uh, on behalf of their name. Can you imagine if I would ask you to answer every call that I get instead of me? No. Why not? Because it would annoy you? Yes. I know, but Maya and I had no choice. We had to help them. Does that seem hard? Yes. But there were good things too. Like what? Well, for example, when you make noise in the house, what do you usually tell you? Shaket bevakasha. Quiet. Right. But think about it. We didn't have anyone to tell us to be quiet. We lived in a building with 32 apartments. And guess which apartment was the noisiest? Which? The deaf people's apartment. All day long, they were yelling and screaming and all kinds of drama. Yuval, have you ever seen Saba and Safta's special alarm clock? The one that goes... Yes, I know it, I know it. So you know, it's really loud and it would shake the whole floor. And the poor neighbor from downstairs had suffered from this uh, alarm clock for 30 years. It would wake her up at 5 o'clock every single morning. <laughs> Yuvali, so what do you think about Saba Vesafta now that you heard all these stories? Mm, I think I have a special Saba Vesafta. They don't hear like they have a plug in their ear, but it isn't a plug. But it's okay. You can talk to them in sign language who speak slowly and clearly. And they can understand. Do they talk like everyone else? Uh, yes, but a bit slower. But do their voices sound like voices of normal people? Yes. Yes? Yes. Can? Can. I asked my mom whether she felt like we were actually running the house when we were kids. No, she said. We only ask for help with the phones. That's it. And even for that, we had to bribe you. Most of the other errands, we did ourselves, like any other parents. I think my mom's mainly talking about me there. I remember that I didn't like to be the responsible adult, to pick up the phone and speak on their behalf, or to translate conversations and sometimes even fight with a person on the other end of the line. But I'm not going to lie. There were some major advantages as well. Yeah, you guys didn't always tell us the truth. You'd skip class a lot. What do you think? That we didn't know what you were up to? She's right. I guess there was sort of an unspoken agreement between us. Phone services in exchange for benefits. I don't think my teachers ever caught on to my screening techniques. During parent-teacher conferences, I'd constantly mistranslate. Whenever a teacher would report that I needed to spend more time studying and less time yapping, I'd sign to my parents that she said I was an excellent student. In fact, one of the best in the class. It wasn't just school-related benefits. Whenever my friends needed a place to hang out where they could make noise late into the night, Our house was always the first choice. We were allowed to laugh about everything in our house. Nothing was off limits, especially deafness. Achi, do you remember that we used to do imitations of uh, Ima and Abba's friends? Of course, it was the national sport at our house. <laughs> so, can you give me one? We'll be on the radio? Yeah. I'm embarrassed. Afshay, <laughs> Our story began with the radio playing next to my crib. And I guess that's not so far from where it ends. Today I'm a radio producer and teach courses on radio as well. My life is full of sounds and voices and music and language. So consciously or not, I guess, I chose to do the thing that is farthest from deafness. My parents don't totally get it. I mean, they do and they are proud of me, but they also don't. 
When I told my mom that I'd been hired as a producer for Israel Story, she asked if I could get rich from it. And she didn't like the answer. But even though she jokes about all this, she knows exactly how I got into this profession. It makes sense, Ima. You know why? Because my entire life, what have you asked me for? Stories. Stories, stories, stories. You love stories. And that's what I do now. I tell stories. But we won't hear your stories. So what do we do? We need a translation. So there we are. My parents need a translation to be able to hear my stories. And you need a translation to be able to understand theirs. And me? I'm in between, translating back and forth, just like I did for so many years over the phone. Some things, I guess, never really change. Maya Kosover is a senior producer on our show. We wanted to make this piece accessible for deaf people as well. So if you'd like to read it or share it with someone who can't hear the audio version, there's a full transcript on our site www.israelstory.org And that's our episode. Before we go, I wanted to tell you about a fabulous new podcast from PRX and Esquire magazine. It's called Esquire Classic, and it's hosted by Public Radio's David Brancaccio. In each episode, you'll hear the backstory of some of Esquire's most intriguing nonfiction stories and essays. Just a few days ago, I listened to their latest episode, and, as cliché as this sounds, I literally could not bring myself to get out of the car. It's called Old, and it's an astonishingly intimate portrait of Glenn Sandberg, age 92, who reflects about what it actually feels like to be close to the end. It's all about mortality and love and companionship and the things in life that matter most and how those things we once held as so important sort of fall away with time. While I was listening, I kept on thinking about my beloved Safta, my grandma, who died three months before her 99th birthday a few years back. Anyway, it's really touching. You should check it out. Esquire Classic on iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. That's also where you can catch all of our old episodes. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all under Israel Story. And I'm reminding you one more time to go to our site, israelstory.org, and donate to our listener drive. On a somewhat related note, we are still looking for a sponsor. We have a wonderful audience, people like you, who are all interested in and engaged with Israel. So if you want to support our show and reach what has become a lot, a lot of people, email us at sponsor at prx.org. Lastly, in our previous episode, I told you about our upcoming Yom Atzmaut, or Israeli Independence Day live show tour in the States. And now we have the dates. Our show, 68 and Counting, We'll be coming to New Orleans on May 11th, New York on May 15th and 16th, Palo Alto on the 17th, and Chicago on May 19th and 24th. Email us at livetour at israelstory.org or follow us on social media for more info and tickets. There were many folks who worked hard on this episode. Thank you to our friends at Galei Tzal, Maya Geyer, Ben Katan, and Or Levy. To Josh Berger, who ate dinner alone while my sister Dana stepped out to talk to her family for the 17th time that day. To our wonderful partners at PRX, and especially to Carrie Hoffman, Kathleen Unwin, Gina James, Maggie Taylor, and Laurel Earhart. To the one and only Adrian Mathewitz, who has come to Israel to work on a big surprise we have coming your way. And to Mitch Ginsburg, Moran Gutmann, Federica Sasso, Ike Fischer, Hanoch Lipperman, Marganit Lipperman, Pnina Goldstein, and Julie Fischer. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Go to tabletmag.com slash Israel Story to hear all our previous episodes. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Shai Satran, Roi Gilron, Maya Kosover, Shoshi Shmulovitz, and Rachel Fisher. 
Amir Faktor, Itai Hyman, and Katie Pulverman are our incredible production interns. Julie Subrin's our executive producer. I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back next time with a brand new Israel Story episode. Till then, yalla bye. She's a friend.